to Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're talking about underground infernos, solar sausage, and poison control. In the second half, we're talking to Carolyn Dugas, who will teach us about sustainable foraging. But first, the news. So I think we can all get behind the idea that burning coal to generate power is helping to drive climate change, right? That doesn't seem too unintuitive. However, the idea that climate change is causing more coal to burn seems a little less like intuitive to me, at least. That doesn't mean that it's not true. So in an article from High Country News, Austin Gaffney covers the effort to learn why more coal seams are burning underground, how they're affecting wildfire season, and if climate change is responsible. And I thought this particular article was interesting because I grew up like 20 minutes away from a very famous coal seam fire in Centralia, Pennsylvania. That fire has been burning for like 60 years. And then I was even more shocked to find out that that is like a hundredth of the length of time that the longest burning coal seam fire has been going for 6,000 years in Australia. Um, So, A, Climate change and coal linked those two great tastes that taste great together. And B, the ground is on fire everywhere, apparently. So that's something to think about. So what do we think about these underground infernos? This is pretty fascinating just to think that we could have these underground fires. But then you step back for a second, you think, well, we're talking about the crust of the earth. But if we're talking about the mantle of the earth, the whole thing's on fire. So it's really not that weird to think that there's something on fire below the surface of the earth. But True. this close to the surface of the earth is, I think, what is jarring. And the fact that you could have a fire burning underground, spreading great distances and not see anything that would tip you off to that is also kind of frightening. So the story that we read had a you know an opening scene where a fella's truck got swallowed by the earth because yeah. the, it was on fire underneath. Like, that's apocalyptical right yeah it's wild apocalyptic is probably the word apocalyptical just sounds bleh, like i'm from kansas it sounds like a fallout exercise bike the apocalyptical oh yes <laughs> i see what you did there i see what you did there yeah it was wild how in the winter you can find hints of where these underground coal seam fires are by looking at where snow is melting mm-hmm. and then in the summer the smell of sulfur and you get these burning sinkholes, just like, I can't even imagine like coming upon one of these and seeing and seeing it like they did in the opening of the story. Right. The other thing I found was fascinating is they're trying to actually get a larger data set to see how prevalent these coal seam fires are. And if we're seeing an increase due to the increased temperatures um, and the increased amount of wildfires that can spark these coal seam fires that then coal seam fires can ignite wildfires. So you get into this negative feedback loop. And so they're trying to get the data set, the scientific data evidence to to prove that. And so a lot of times they were flying planes overhead. 
to document where these coal seam fires are. You can do infrared uh, imaging. And they weren't able to get as, you know, document as many until they started flying drones closer to the surface. Suddenly in areas where planes weren't seeing any coal seam fires, now they're seeing so many more because they have the diagnostics, the measurement tools to actually locate them. The thing that really like jumped out to me, because I was thinking like, what is there like maybe five more coal seam fires or something? And it doesn't really matter necessarily what the number increases because it's increasing at a rate of about 1400% over the past two decades. That is a little bit alarming. And I think what you said, Steffi, is absolutely correct, is this is just creating a feedback loop at this point where coal seam fires are starting wildfires that start coal seam fires. And this is just like kind of piggybacking around all these areas of Montana. So this article is talking about Montana, which has a very large and close to the surface coal seam that is a lar- around large portions of the state. So what I thought was most fascinating about this story going back, going to Montana here was that locals just treat these as nuisances on their properties and just monitor them, them themselves mm-hmm. until they get to a certain size and then they have to call in authorities, but they, they dig a fire line around it. They just kind of keep an eye on it. You know, it got me thinking like, I do something similar when I put out, you know, or when I let the fire in my fire pit burn out, right? Like I make sure that, you know, there's Mm -hmm. smoldering coals there and I make sure that they're not spreading, but like, I'm not actively worried about it. If it gets big, I would start to freak out. I can't imagine though, this is all above ground. You know, I have sand in the bottom of the fire pit to make Mm -hmm. sure that it doesn't actually get underground and spread because there are tree roots and all that kind of stuff. Like the last thing I want is for the tree next to the house to go up in flames because of a fire pit hundred yards from the house or whatever. That's extreme. I don't have that big of a yard, but hundred feet from the house is probably better. But uh, you know, that's the last thing I want. And to think that they're just monitoring these larger scale fire pits that are underground was kind of interesting to me. Well, and that's the wild thing about coal seam fires is that there's, there's not a lot you can do to put them out. Like I'll talk again about the Centralia fire. They tried flooding the uh, mine shafts just with like huge amounts of water. They tried flooding them under pressure to try to like force the water into the area. They've tried like drenching the ground from above and it is still going strong 60 years because of the way that like you can, you can douse the like, edge that's exposed but the fire just kind of keeps like smoldering down below so that when the heat that it's generating dries the coal out above it just lights up again and like this article is focusing on wildfires but i think the other thing that we have to think about is that when like once the area of coal that's actively burning goes away you have sinkholes you have some pretty noxious fumes so again centralia the reason that they kind of abandoned the town and you can see some pretty like ghostly images of the 1960s version of this town and today it wasn't necessarily because of a fire issue it was because of the fumes like the air quality Mm -hmm. was so poor that they had to abandon and sinkholes were pretty prevalent right Um, right so this article talks about how the smell of sulfur is really strong and that's about the only clue that you have (laughs) that there's a coal seam fire going on nearby unless it's in the winter time in which case as steffi mentioned you can see you know areas of melting snow or in the case of the opening story your tires start melting while you're driving to put out the fire (laughs) 
That was terrifying. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm used to having uh, tires do all sorts of things because I drive on Indianapolis roads, which are right. among the worst in, in the country. But that, <laughs> I've never had them melt. You know, it's like the Indy 500. You got to get that friction up, right? To to get those those tight turns. That's right. You know, they say at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is the only uh, two and a half mile stretch of of road in the entire city of Indianapolis that doesn't have potholes. Do we have anything else to say about coal fires and how we didn't start them? I just think this is fascinating. I didn't even know that was happening and the extent and for how long, like 6,000 years, a coal seam fire in Australia. That's wild. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that how little data that we had. So I thought it was fascinating that Montana is actually, you know, the department of natural resources and conservation is actually getting the data set. And scientists were like watching YouTube videos for hours on how to fly drones. (laughs) <laughs> so that they could get this data that didn't exist before. It's awesome. Climate change, the more we look into the cycles, the more it's all connected and just going haywire. <laughs> sure. I mean, that's going to be inspiring a lot of people to make a lot of different decisions, isn't that? Coming coming up, hopefully. Speaking I saw a story of- in CNN, actually, that said that most Americans think that climate change is still think that climate change is not coming for them. Define most. Huh? I mean, over 50% yeah. is is technically most. What are we dealing with? We dealing with like 80? Because that's bad. My guess is that it's the folks where I live and where Steffi lives that are not concerned about climate change because they think that they're insulated, but they're yeah. not. Mm-hmm. We're not. Especially if they got a coal seam nearby. Over the summer, images compiled by NASA from the data sent from the new space telescope has wowed the science community and the general public. These incredible images have allowed scientists like previous guest Dr. Lacey Brock to learn about distant planets, stars, even galaxies. And as the years go on, a whole new crop of scientists will probably point back to this moment as the one that inspired them to pursue a career in science. And here's a fun story, guys. I gotta tell you, there's a life change coming for me. Just the other day, I saw this like super incredible image shared by French uh, French scientist Etienne Klein that showed the Proxima Centauri star. It was like the most exquisite, some might even say delicious detail I've ever seen. And I just think like being able to see a star in this detail, it's it's really inspired me to go into a different field of maybe like astronomy, astrophysics, even that that plasma stuff that Steffi's always talking about, but. I just, I, it's really interesting when you can see this detail and it just inspires you to just, yeah. What, what's up? That, that was sausage. Uh, It's chorizo. Is, I don't, maybe that's different language, but they said Proxima Centauri. The closest chorizo to, but, uh, (laughs) to our sun. (laughs) Hold on. You're telling me that this French guy went on Beyonce's internet and did a hoax with chorizo sausage on the the space telescope. <sighs> hmm. This this is why we get bad name, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about this little uh, French French faux pas that I'm sure blew up a lot more than 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 Etienne Klein suspected would happen. <laughs> I uh, I wonder if the backlash came because he didn't put up a French sausage. But instead, he put up chorizo. Do you think that, like, if it had been French, it would have been okay? 
What is a French sausage? I can't even. Yeah, I, I'm just, I was just trying to figure that out too. I'm sure there are some. France, if you can, uh, if you can give us the hookup of some French sausage, we'll, we'll compare it to chorizo. I would say like the color profile of chorizo is more like the sun images. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. did the fat blobs look like plasma to you? Did it look like plasma eruptions? So- if you just like kind of glance at the image where you see like the different variations in like orange to yellow to white, that kind of looks like sunspots that we mm-hmm. see where you have, you know, plasma swirling around in this amazing star and reconnect, breaking field lines, reconnecting, shooting out flares. You kind of get a hint of it mm-hmm. in chorizo. Yeah. Maybe. I honestly, so. I saw the image knowing it was fake. I really wish I would have seen the image not knowing it was chorizo first to see if it was like a what color is the dress situation. Like, am I ever going to be able to see a star that is not chorizo from now on? <laughs> All I can think of is, man, huevos rancheros. Like, oh, that's man. so delicious. I know. That's what I'm saying. It looks so good. To the scientist's credit, like they immediately came out like, no, no, this this is fake. I'm sorry. Please, please. This is fake. Don't believe it. And uh, the best thing that has come out of all of this is the many, many memes where they replace a star or the moon with this slice of chorizo. It has been great. I haven't seen those. Oh, man. You got to go to his Twitter. It is like... Uh, just imagine like a beautiful moonlit beach, but with chorizo hanging above it, yeah. or you have like the three sons of, of Tatooine, but they're all chorizos. Um, <laughs> yeah. When the moon hits the sky, like a big pizza pie, that's chorizo, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something like that. And in all things, the internet remains undefeated. I just want to point out that both of you just stared at me when I was singing and you're like, mm-hmm. And then we moved on. Nothing. I mean, I, it's a good thing that you're not like depending on on making a name for yourself on something that is only your voice. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a good point. <laughs> Scientists on Twitter. Like, can they make jokes when they make jokes? Are they supposed to put a disclaimer? With so much misinformation out there. Right. So we have a responsibility to not confuse the public, mm-hmm. right? We have that yeah. responsibility. But at the same time, like we should be authentic people. Right. And so yeah. if you're a jokester, it's okay. But I do think that maybe you need to have some kind of disclaimer or an immediate like, hey, I w- this was just a joke. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I guess I didn't look at how quickly the This is Chorizo post came, but it was like, was pretty close to each other. And the reporting is reporting it as the prank, not as like this amazing image is, is right. available to you. Um, but I think you're right. Like, we have a lot of scientific hoaxes that permeate through science history and are just like, cannon fodder for all of the misinformation folks on youtube i could see where if you just like superimpose a a skeleton that to look twice as large as you the the uh the giants community that is all over the place is gonna steal that and be like here's an actual scientist that has proof and he's hiding it Um, yeah 
Yeah. Or Coyote well, Peterson. Ugh. I, I mean, I had this on my personal like social media once I was, it's my social media is a, this like family dog community scientists like mm-hmm. meld. So I was like, I, I'm not microwaving food. That's gross. Microwaves are for plasmas because I microwave plasmas for a living. Like that's, that's the science mm-hmm. that I do. And so I got so many messages from like friends and family and like people that know me. They're like, wait, are you saying my it's not safe to microwave food. Is, is that what I'm like? No, no, no. I meant it to be a joke. Like I, when I see a microwave, I'm like, I need to, to use this at work for plasma, mm-hmm. not for food. Cause that's when, yes. So I, I even learned, I have to be careful about yeah. that. You know, I'm totally with you every Thanksgiving, my, uh, before my, my wife's grandmother passed away, I was always the one who was charged with carving the turkey. And she would come in and she would say, where did you learn to do that? And every time I would say, well, this is just an occupational hazard. It's what I do for a living. <laughs> what do you mean? Right. But I mean, yeah. you know, like I carve things up for a living. Like that's my job. I don't understand. Never mind, But we, we just, we're not going to talk about it. Right. But like, I would never use a scalpel to carve a turkey. Sure. Right. But I would never use a kitchen knife to do a dissection. So it's kind of the same thing here, right? Like just use yeah. your stovetop, Steffi. Don't use a microwave to make your food. Use a microwave to make your plasma. <laughs> yeah. By the way, how powerful is that microwave, right? <laughs> like, um, imagine, okay. imagine yeah. making a hot pocket in that microwave. You'd have to hit the stop button real fast. Mm-hmm. It would vaporize. I mean, it's like a thousand times stronger than your microwave at home. How's, how, what's the size least. difference? Uh, the size of a person versus oh, okay. so uh, you the can't size mix it of out. my hand. Got it. You yeah, can't, you can't. You can't like you can't throw the popcorn be... in there and hit it. And no. <laughs> like the whole no. lab smells like burnt popcorn forever. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Brings back a vision from the movie Real Genius, right? <laughs> Where the laser made the popcorn in the house and just filled the entire house with popcorn. With a montage of people playing in the popcorn and uh, tears for fears, everybody wants to rule the world playing. It's an iconic image from yeah. my childhood. I think that's the one they filmed at General Atomics because there's like a couple scenes. Callback. On that building. Where I'm like, oh, that's the cafeteria over there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. We're talking about chorizo. We're talking about popcorn. We're talking about microwaves. I'm getting so hungry right now. It's a good thing that I just found like this clump of mushrooms that I've been snacking on outside. Uh, as I, as I, we, you've been, you've been chatting about all these things, and I got to tell you, they really hit the spot. But oh, hold on, hold on, you ate yeah. those without considering what they were. Well, I, they look good. I mean, if Mario, if the Mario games have taught me anything, these are the oh, best no. mushrooms to have. But for some reason, my tongue's a little itchy, and like. <sighs> I, you can see sounds, right? Like that's a uh, thing that we've always been. Steffi, why are you melting? No, right, I, that's no. what I was going to ask you. No, did you take a picture of it? Yeah, no, it was like that. It was like the Mario mushroom, the red with the white dots. That's fine, right? I mean, that little plumber <gasps> man seems to be oh, fine. No. You've done something horribly wrong. Oh no! Uh, if only there was a place we could turn to to uh, tell me what what kind of danger I'm in. There is. We're going to Facebook now. We're heading over there. 
to poisons help emergency identification for mushrooms and plants. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait, James, they said it was psilocybin. Oh, that's (gasps) fine. It'll make the uh, rest of the recording much more interesting. Okay, this group is fascinating, though. Especially, you know, if humans or your dog or cat eat a suspicious mushroom or a plant, this online community is amazing because the worldwide, they have experts that will look at your images and identify pretty quickly um, what it is. I'm just in awe of this group. Yeah. Well, especially like compared to the alternative that we would normally think of, which is the poison control hotline, which the story from the article that we're going to link talks about like a concerned mother calling and saying that their toddler has ingested these mushrooms and then saying, oh, email it to this uh, email and we'll get back to you in a couple hours. Like, I am a parent and I don't think I would be okay with hearing like, just sit tight. It'll probably be fine. Right? Yeah. We need, we need immediate information or as close to immediate information as a parent to make us feel better about sort of what's happening. Mm -hmm. This kind of community is fantastic because it's almost real time identification for you. It reminds me a lot about, of the Twitter account that I actually follow about Brown recluse spiders. I live in an area of the country where there are lots of them. It's called recluse or not, right? And people just post pictures of these spiders. Is this a brown recluse? Nope, it's not. Okay, you know, it's such and such. Okay, good, 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 right? Um, I've been bitten by a brown recluse twice now. It's not a lot of fun. But, you know, I've lived my entire life in an area where they are. And so, you know, we just do our best to make sure that we don't provide them with the kinds of spaces that they want to live in. Or if we have those spaces... That if we're entering those spaces, we are we're doing it That's slowly. The spider's realm. That's right. We are announcing our arrival to Aragog. If you here we go, and you walk in with intentionality and knee high boots. That's correct. What I think is great about this group is not only how you know it's a network of experts around the world and they can identify it fast, but oftentimes or sometimes people are pretty familiar with the apps that can identify plants or fungi. And you really, really want to be absolute sure when it's something that may be poisonous. So getting human eyes on that, that are experts, is like key in these situations. Right. So then you can give the information, the species to poison control or the medical experts that know how to treat it. Right. Because if you're using something like iNaturalist, for instance, that's going to be like algorithm driven rather than actually having... Um, people. And in the case of this Facebook group, it was started by mycologists and experts in the field. And now it's also a lot of community members who are able to like look at past experiences and everything. Because we talked about the stories of just like toddlers stumbling upon them or pets eating them. But since the beginning of the pandemic, foraging has gotten really popular. And I can imagine that this Facebook group has gotten incredibly popular as well as they're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have put this in this uh, fettuccine Alfredo I made from Mm. the woods. Uh, So I can see where this uh, site will continue to get popular as time goes on. Especially now they got the science night bump. That's right. What we should point out, though, which I think is the most interesting and uh, probably best aspect of this Facebook community, is that there is a system of moderators, right? Mm -hmm. There is a a collection of moderators, and only moderators are allowed to answer initially. You know, what is this? 
and they're allowed to identify. And then once that has been done, they will allow anyone to comment. Right. This is important because in a situation like social media where every voice can be heard, it is sometimes hard to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? What is the good information? What is the not as good information? And um, in this case, the moderators are credentialed. They are mycologists. They are experts in fungi. Having them be able to voice their opinion before non-experts or people without the same credentials can voice their opinions means that the information is probably more trustworthy at the outset than it would be if this was just a Twitter hive mind kind of approach. Yeah. Yeah. And you still get the benefit of it being decentralized. So you don't have like your local poison control center might have a single person that could potentially be able to identify this. And hopefully they're working that day or can be reached. Uh, whereas this, you have the benefit of a large network over, over a larger area. So you can get a hold of somebody. I think maybe maybe a lot of different Facebook groups should take take note from this and have only moderators be able to talk yeah. at first. I think it's also important too that people who are using the group actually ad- you like look at the rules uh, <laughs> and make sure you're posting in an actual emergency situation. It's not just like, oh my gosh, I saw a mushroom in my yard. What is this mushroom? Sure. No, that's not an emergency. There's another Facebook group for that. Someone, especially for fungi, you have to ingest it. So you have to actively see someone or an animal eat it so that you know it's an emergency because if a patient is presenting with symptoms that may be similar to, you know, a toxicity from fungi, but you don't know that it ate the mushroom, you could be doing misdiagnosis. So it's really important to actually have evidence too sure yeah because you know the same toxicity syndromes of certain mushrooms could also mimic just an anaphylactic response to an allergy of the other things that you had in your wild Mm -hmm. mushroom fettuccine alfredo so Mm -hmm. yeah you're absolutely right it's going to be different treatments now that we've learned what not to do when foraging let's go to my conversation with carolyn dugas to learn more about how to forage safely and sustainably we'll have that segment in just a moment but first a message from another podcast that i think you will enjoy nature we're part of it animals we're one of them What can we learn from other species? How can our lives be better by reconnecting with nature? And why does it matter at all? That's what Wild Connection, the podcast, is all about. Every week, we bring you authors, filmmakers, scientists, and conservationists whose work is revealing why being connected to nature and wildlife matters. You can find us where you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. We're hosted by Podbean, so you can find us there too. And you can keep up with us on Twitter at WildConnectPod. Welcome back to the Science Night Podcast. Tonight, we have a fantastic forager for you to learn some some more things about what's growing around your house. We are here with Carolyn Dugas. Carolyn, thank you so much for talking to me. 
Thanks for having me, James. It's a delight to be here. Yeah, and I really appreciate you uh, bringing me this cup. Um, it looks like there's like moss in it or something. I saw in your website how you're really into moss smoothies. So what am I going to be experiencing when I when I take a sip of this? Hmm. Waves of euphoria washing over your brain. How's it going down? You know, it's um, it's a little chunkier than I'd like. Uh, I guess I. Uh, vegetal i think vegetal is one of those things that give us a tasting note i got i'm not gonna lie it tastes a lot like moss but that's okay you know edible and flavorful are two different ends of the same coin i guess so let's talk about foraging i am not much of a forager i'm one of those people who want to be a forager so bad and then the idea of like i'm gonna die if I do this without knowing anything. So tell me about how you got into foraging. Sure. Um, yeah, that's a really common feeling um, as you enter into foraging. I was the same way. I think I was, I had this like terrible fear of eating wild plants for the first 20 years of my life. Didn't eat a single thing besides dandelion leaves. And um, kind of my first entry into this world is I attended a plant walk with Abby Artemisia, who later became my teacher. And it like busted open my mind. Um, it was so nice to have a knowledgeable person who I really trusted and felt comfortable guiding me into the world of foraging and wild foods. Now, I assume like you could learn everything you would need to know from a combination of books and YouTube videos and podcasts are a great resource for uh, <laughs> identifying visual media, uh, but podcasts as well. But how important is it for you to have a person that you can walk into the woods with? I would say it's, yeah, extremely important. I was the kind of person who I, I love books. I love book reading. I was like, I'm going to get all the books. I'm going to teach myself how to forage. I'm going to do this. And I got the books and uh, I could not tell, you know, alternate from opposite leaves, which is like the most basic botany <laughs> plant. And um, it's just like I wasn't able to trust myself because I didn't have, you know, any cultural background for working with wild plants. But as soon as I worked with a person who regularly foraged, it was like, a green light to go ahead and like taste the stuff. And I didn't feel like, you know, I had to have years of research on my own to understand them. You know, I feel like foraging is one of those things. Like I said, it seems like a lower barrier to entry, but if you want to eat something that is good, uh, maybe, maybe there's a little more work than you're expect expecting. So what do you say to the person like me who picks out something that people say is edible and it is just a cup of moss that I've been told is going to be a transformative experience and just kind of lets the hobby go at that point. Uh, you know, what are, what are your, what's your advice to somebody like that? Just like there's the whole spectrum of flavor in like grocery store foods, that spectrum is mirrored in wild foods. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's the boiled rustled sprouts of the wild food world. And there's also like the fanciest flavorings you'll find at only the most gourmet restaurants mm -hmm. that people really pay top dollar for that only grow wild. So there's a whole spectrum. So if you had a bad experience, that's very common. Don't worry. There is a whole world of flavor out there for you. And, you know, talking about foraging and kind of, you know, using grocery stores as an analogy, 
or, or a simile, you know, we're a science podcast, not an English podcast, like or as. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's really interesting because I think as like a modern Western culture, we're pretty divorced from where our food comes from. And that's one of the things that I am trying to get a little better at. And um, when I think of foraging, I just think of you know, it's forcing you to eat seasonally. It's forcing you to eat extremely locally. And it's really forcing you to kind of know where your food comes from at a very personal level, you know, to avoid poisoning. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I really am interested in the things that you're doing and kind of like reaching out into the community to, get more people into this and just have them be aware of the things that's all around them. So could you talk a little bit about uh, what you are doing to raise awareness uh, in your community? Sure. Um, So last month I taught a free class at the library called Eat Your Weeds. And I taught folks about tasty, easy to identify, relatively safe weeds to harvest that are just growing in their gardens. A lot of people, myself included, when they first encountered foraging, like thought that you had to go into like the deep dark woods to hunt down the (laughs) rarest plant. But in reality, some of our, you know, most delicious and nutritious plants are growing right outside our door. It's hard to beat that level of accessibility. Even in cities, there's a ton of edible weeds around, although this uh, plays on your point of, you know, you have to know where you're harvesting. You have to know what kind of stuff, if there's salts on the street, like what kind mm-hmm, of chemicals sure. may have been dumped there. So you do have to be mindful of that. But I like to focus on on weeds that grow right around us because it's it's very empowering. Like we've lived and worked and been around these plants, you know, all our lives. And it's like almost taking the little like plant blinders off your eyes and suddenly you can see the diversity around you. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't think anyone is going to complain about doing something with the weeds that they're probably going to be pulling out of the ground anyway. Um, And it's really interesting that you say, you know, you had the only thing you had experienced before is dandelion. So that makes sense. You know, it's everywhere um, Mm -hmm. in, at least in the Northeast, you know, I'm, I come from a very Pennsylvania Dutch area. So we definitely ate the heck out of dandelion. Uh, leaves not so much the root that was something that I actually had to come to learn that you could you could mm. re- eat up the roots too so that's really interesting um, Did you ever have them with like hot bacon dressing which oh, is a Pennsylvania yes. Dutch specialty that yeah. was like that is the taste of spring for me is mm-hmm. is dandelion greens with some kind of of warm dressing uh, man now you're making me a little bit homesick but you know that's the great thing about dandelions they're everywhere I always look outside and I'm like, why would people want to kill these? There's all there's an entire market around killing dandelions, but man, you can eat every part of it, you know. Except, I mean, the seeds don't taste great, but my daughter puts the seed heads in her mouth all the time, and it's yes it's for the adventurous eaters. Yeah, <laughs> you talked about how you can get a lot of the things just outside your yard, but a lot of people will eventually go out into the woods or at least into a uh, less populated area. What are the things that people should think about when they're doing that that might not seem as obvious? Obviously, you want to make sure you're on places where you're allowed to be and you're being safe just being away from people. But what are some things that you might not think about? 
In terms of like safety or more like the ethics of harvesting? I think both. I think uh, being safe in an area where you might not know so much about and then also making sure that you are kind of foraging the right way. So I would say to address the first point that you really should be foraging in areas that you do know. Foraging is a very kind of relationship-based art. I would say like having a relationship with the land, having a relationship with the plants. And so, you know, if you don't know an area, you probably shouldn't be harvesting there. You should be, you know, you can identify an area as somewhere you might want to harvest and you should return throughout the seasons and see how the land changes, see which animals are eating the plants, get a feel, you know, for the ecology and the system. And as for kind of harvesting principles, it's really important to develop your relationship with the plant. So learn its life cycle, learn when it's okay to harvest it, um, learn how much you can harvest without harming the plant. It's hard to talk about foraging without, you know, talking about ramps, which have kind of become the poster child for New England uh, or Northeast foraging. And they are grossly over harvested and like frequently irresponsibly harvested Mm -hmm. um, because they do have a seven year growth cycle. And so when you see them in the store and the roots have been picked and the root bulb is there in the store that's killed a plant that takes seven years to regenerate itself to get to that point. So it's really important to, to do research on, you know, not just identification. Identification is just the first step, but learn healthy and sustainable harvesting practices for each plant and mushroom you gather. Yeah, that seems like such an important piece. You know, if your goal is to go out and forage so that you feel more connected to your land and more connected to your food, it would be a bad, bad thing to just go in and kind of clear cut an area because you really want to have some fiddleheads uh, with dinner tonight. So yeah, I think that is a very well put point. I want to talk about a specific thing that you have a nice looking recipe for, and I'm sure it's great, but it is just the scourge of my existence. And that is invasive Japanese knotweed. So I have so much of it in my backyard (laughs) right now. It is like six feet tall. Uh, It grows two inches a day. It seems like if we get any kind of sun, But it is something that some people can get joy from. So let's talk about like foraging and invasives. And what are some of the things that you need to be especially careful for if you're you're kind of harvesting things that may be invasive for the region that you're in? Is there any any other precautions you need to take? Sure. That's a great question. Um, Probably the biggest one is to be aware that, you know, as you mentioned with dandelion, there can be whole industries based on killing these plants. So I've had friends who had knotweed patches that drove them to the brink of insanity and they were out there with little syringes of Roundup stabbing each little individual (laughs) knotweed shoot to make it die. And uh, you need to be really careful that, you know, you're not harvesting in an area that's recently been sprayed with like glyphosate. Because you don't want to eat that. It's not, you know, it's not going to do you any good. Kind of a good tip for knotweed specifically is in areas that are frequently tended where people are trying to get rid of it, they'll often, you know, they'll cut it down and they'll clear out the stalks. So if you're looking for like an undisturbed area to harvest, look for a place that has lots of the old dead stalks on the ground. Mm -hmm. And you can tell there's probably, you know, not someone who's, who's fussing over how to 
how to destroy it at least actively. <laughs> yeah, you know, I haven't gotten to the point where I'm using pesticides. I'm trying to do it without, you know, poisoning my water table, but I am I'm right on the brink. Uh <laughs> I like we can pull you back. You know, I'm I I dislike the idea of using any kind of herbicide, so I'm probably not gonna get there. Um but I did call the extension service and they're like, um well you you could move, I guess, <laughs> yeah. if you don't want to use any kind of pest of uh, herbicide. So, so that's where we're at right now. But you know, I'm very close to the Connecticut River, so don't want to get anything in that water. So, I want to talk more about your online presence because I've been watching some of your videos on YouTube and on your social medias, and they're a lot of fun. They're very informative, but they're also a lot of fun. So how do you come up with the ideas for the songs, for the music videos, and just your general recommendation videos and the things that you're doing on social media? Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's a... I know, that's a very big question. a lot going on there. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll start with the songs. Uh, so I work closely with my creative partner, Will, who is a wonderful songwriter. And I guess I just, I really needed an outlet for like all this, like love for foraging and wild mm -hmm. plants and mushrooms that, that is inside me. And, um, so I kind of talk constantly to the folks around me about these and eventually Will is like, well, I think we should write a song. And so he'll like get out his little guitar and, you know, write up the song and I'll sing it, share it with the world. Yeah. I just hope that making things more fun makes the like education easier to swallow because I think that like forging should be fun. I've had some really great teachers and I've also had some teachers who kind of just were, were monotone and mm -hmm. like only the facts. And it was so hard. Like, even though I'm personally invested in this subject, it was so hard to stay engaged. And so I really think that, you know, bringing, bringing in other media can help folks really get excited about this. And another person who's doing, you know, great things in this area is um, the Black Forager. I love her. I love her. We, we were, we want to get her on the podcast so bad, but she is so busy, but standing invitation to really to any forager that's going out there. Because again, it's something that I'm really interested in and really kind of interested in getting, getting the information out there. And I think to your point about having people engage with it in a new way is really something we're passionate about here at the podcast. With science communication of all kinds, it's really important to use the talents that you have, even if they aren't the traditional methods of conveying the information to get it out there. Because you're right, you know, when it's fun and then it's accidentally educational on the back end, you know, the information gets out there and people come back. So I think that's that's just as important. So the last thing that I want to ask you before I release you back into the forest is how can people follow you and how can people keep up with the things that you are doing, with the things that you are foraging? The best way to keep up with me is to join my newsletter. I've been taking a little break from social media, but I always announce stuff on the newsletter, upcoming classes, new recipes on the sites, new songs. Um, I announce that to the newsletter first. So if you go to my website, uh, freshandforaged.com with a D, forged with a D, um, and sign up there, I would love to meet you in my virtual newsletter space. Thank you so much. We will have links to all of the things that you're doing on our website. Carolyn, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me, James. 
You have come to the end of another episode, but don't worry, we've got lots of new things coming your way, including more special episodes from our trip to Gen Con a few weeks ago. So be sure to follow us on social media. If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at James underscore read three. Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or on Instagram at Starshipin. And Jason, where can everybody find what you're doing? You can find me at Twitter at Organ JM. Follow the show on Twitter at Science Night One and visit our website, SciNight.com, for links to all our other social media past episodes, links to the stories we talk about and the people we talk to, and our merch. Merchandising, merchandising, merchandising. That's right. Nine Inch Snails is a hit. It is. Everyone's talking about it. All of Gen Con was up in arms about these Nine Inch Snails t-shirts, so why don't you go and buy one now before we have to shut it down because it's just too popular. We'll be back in one week with another special episode, and until then... Have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. Also, something you should know is that for whatever reason, my audacity is no longer recording my microphone. It is just frozen. Oh, no. So we didn't so even we get missed, that? We didn't get that song?